Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds that are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Farzad Mustashari, founder and CEO of Alidaid, former national coordinator for health IT and chair of the COVID-19 Symptom Data Challenge, a partnership with Facebook Data for Good and other organizations resolved to save lives, Catalyst Health 2.0, as well as Duke, Carnegie Mellon, and the University of Maryland. They're tapping into Facebook's 2 billion users to assist in creating a real-time predictive tool for forecasting when COVID-19 outbreaks will occur. Lori Robertson also checks in. Managing editor of factcheck.org looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program Conversations on Healthcare. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Farzad Mostashari here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Farzad Mustashari, chair of the COVID-19 Symptom Data Challenge, a partnership between Facebook Data for Good, Carnegie Mellon, Duke, University of Maryland, Catalyst Health 2.0, and Resolve to Save Lives. They're seeking a novel solution for from developers using data from early detection of COVID-19 outbreaks. Dr. Mostashari was the National Coordinator for Health IT under President Obama. He was a fellow at the Brookings Institution, the Engelberg Center for Public Health. He served the New York City Department of Health under Tom Frieden, and prior to that, at the Centers for Disease Control's Epidemiological Intelligence Service. Dr. Mostashari, we welcome you back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Yeah, Farzad, welcome back. And, you know, really the outbreak of COVID-19 caught the world off guard from a, a regional epidemic to a global pandemic. Uh, and really getting reliable data on outbreaks proved to be a real challenge for public health officials around the world. And you chair the COVID-19 symptom data challenge, and it's a multi-stakeholder challenge, uh, collaborative seeking really a, a new approach, leveraging the power of social media uh, to better predict the spread of coronavirus. And I, I think our listeners would like to know maybe three things. One, tell us about the, the uh, partners uh, in the challenge. Uh, then also the global participation already underway using the Facebook data uh, for change portal. And finally, uh, what are the breakthroughs you're looking to find in, in this new uh, real-time pandemic uh, surveillance? Yeah, I think it's it's worth reviewing what are our current data sources for being able to understand what's happening with the outbreak. And that's obviously key. We have to tailor our approach to the level of activity in uh, in in every state and locality. And, you know, ideally it would be a there would be a national strategy that would be clear and there would be data that's clear to everybody and in the absence of that, we're all having to make our own decisions. Do we open business? Do we go out? Do we send our kids to school or not? And for that, we need data. So what are the data that we are using? If you go to any you know, New York Times or any other, other um, uh, dashboard to see how do we know what's going on with COVID, well, one thing you can look at are deaths. We just passed the 200,000 death mark. The problem with deaths as an indicator of activity in the community is they're late. It takes weeks and now up to 45 to 60 days before an increase in COVID 
will show fully in terms of the deaths. So deaths are a hard outcome, but, but they're much delayed. The second is obviously looking at case counts. The problem with case counts is it depends on testing. And if you have different intensity of testing, if you don't have a design in your testing program, if you don't have sentinel surveillance where you're testing the same kinds of people repeatedly, uh, then you don't get reliable information from testing. And we've seen, as you know, all sorts of debates about whether the increased case count is a function of more testing or less testing or testing different people. So, and then the third data source is a data source that I and others innovated about 20 years ago when I was in the New York City Health Department, which is, well, let's just look at what's happening with hospitalizations or emergency room visits. And those have been quite useful, but again, limited when people change their behaviors, when they stop going to the emergency room, right. going to the doctor, going to the, um, uh, uh, because they're afraid of getting tested, that can, that can change our receptors, as it were. So the idea here was, and this was something that Carnegie Mellon uh, proposed uh, to Facebook back in March, and they stood it up beginning in April, is why don't we just ask people uh, on a massive scale, have you had any of these symptoms in the past 24 hours? And so uh, they have collected 30 million survey results wow. every week. There are surveys being answered by folks in every state and territory and, and in 70 plus countries across the world in 55 different languages asking, answering the question, have you had symptoms? And uh, I think it's an incredibly promising data source, but it really hasn't been used as part of the, one of the main pillars of us determining um, whether what's happening with COVID in the communities. And I think it's because it hasn't been validated. So this symptom challenge is basically putting the call out to citizen scientists around the world saying, here's the data. Here is publicly available aggregated counts by county, week, or by state, by day, by country. See what you can do with it. Uh, match it up against your understanding of what's going on, the best gold standards that we have today, and see what we whether this is worth uh, giving us advanced notice compared to other sources. Well, there's a lot to look back on uh, and critique about the way uh, testing was rolled out in this country, the uncertainty that it led to about actual infection rates. I do think Americans are paying more attention to data and things like infection rates yes. that I have ever seen them pay Absolutely. attention to about anything before. People can tell us in what county of our state where the rates are high, where the rates are low. Uh, and then we began, as you know, measuring the pandemic in terms of deaths now crossing the 200,000 mark. And, and you've said counting death is a lagging indicator of disease. So share with us a little bit about the COVID-19 map and dashboard. Is that part of this Facebook initiative or separate from this? And what better indicators of disease do we find there? What are people saying when they respond to those survey questions? Yeah, uh, we think that it's it seems to be uh, a leading indicator for sure of hospitalizations and deaths and tracking super closely with um, cases and case positivity. There's an interesting um, proof point that just recently looking at the wildfires in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest and clearly seeing a big spike in people responding to the surveys in those states saying, yes, I'm having higher incidence of cough. Uh -huh. uh, for example. Uh -huh. And when you look at Florida uh, in the months leading up to their big increase where people were saying, look, it's a Florida miracle. We can, you know, we can reopen and there's not going to be an increase in cases. It was quite clear on the symptom surveys that there was an increase happening. 
Um, so I think it's promising. The other thing you asked is, well, what else can you find out from this? And one of the other things you can do with symptom surveys is you can ask other questions like, um, you know, are you a healthcare worker? Do you, are you trying to social distance as much as possible? Um, do you, uh, did you get tested? Uh, were you able to get tested? And one of the just small observations from that was the vast majority of people who have symptoms that are quite consistent with COVID, including loss of sense of smell or, or, or taste, vast majority of them never get tested. Uh, and, and I think that's a that's a particular concern yeah. if we think that, for example, contact tracing is going right. to be one of our tools in the toolkit to um, stop the chains of transmission. You know, you've rounded up really a great uh, crew of partners here. Catalyst uh, Health 2.0, your old colleague in New York City, Dr. Tom Frieden's resolve to save lives, uh, as well as the very prominent universities, Duke, University of Maryland, and the Carnegie Mellon. And, and I'm I'm wondering what types of, uh, of, of data they've already extracted or, or, or uh, insights they've gained uh, from the data collected so far, or are you still at early stage? I know you were just fi finishing up phase one, going into phase two of recruiting uh, candidates to start looking, uh, uh, looking at the data, but uh, it, have there been any preliminary uh, insights so far? Yeah, we, we published uh, some of the, the illustrative analyses, some of the preliminary analyses done by data scientists at, at Facebook and Carnegie Mellon in particular, who've, who've done a, a really wonderful um, first cut of, of this. Uh, the basic findings that I described, looking at the timing of increases, say, in Florida compared to others, um, other indicators, the uh, geographically looking to see that the tight correlation between states that, that have high levels of activity giving those traditional metrics compared to high levels of symptom survey. Um, the, uh, the, the example I gave also of um, uh, the, the smoke in the uh, wildfires and, and smoke in the Pacific Northwest. So there's a, there's a set of analyses. If folks go to the, the website symptomchallenge.org um, under illustrative analyses, you can you can read those and, and click on it. But the data is also publicly available. You can just download a CSV file, and if, yeah, you can do it in Excel, right? Uh, and take a look at your jurisdiction. If if you want to look at it by county week, or if you want to look at it by uh, by state by day, and and all those, uh, as as you pointed out, all those all those folks who are more engaged than ever in data. Um, this is an incredibly rich data source for people to play with. We uh, we are accepting, still accept. You know, we haven't we haven't closed phase one yet in terms okay. of uh, receiving applications. Uh, we're actually, I'll, I'll, I'll break it here. Uh, we are going to extend the period for people to be able to uh, submit applications. Uh, so there'll be there'll be a little bit more ex extra time uh, for people to get their analyses done and submitted. And five thousand dollars for those that are selected, or the first five. Yeah, the first five semifinalists will all get five thousand dollars. We'll and then we'll present uh, publicly, and then we will select the, the have an additional period where we'll work with them on visualizations and so forth. And then the final uh, grand prize winner is fifty thousand dollars, and second prize would be twenty five. Wonderful. Well, that's great. Thanks for breaking that news uh, here on Conversations. Uh, and, and on a, a very serious note, uh, you know, there's a lot of tough news these days, but certainly for all of us uh, in healthcare or public health, one uh, 
difficult thing has been to hear about what seems to be a politicization of CDC uh, and really calling into question whether uh, this beacon of the gold standard uh, for yeah. uh, most of us, uh, whether we can rely on it in the way we have uh, based on what we're reading you and hearing. You worked in disease surveillance at the CDC. What's alarming you about what's going on? Uh, what's at stake? What should the public know about uh, how important it is that the CDC scientist voice be untarnished? Yeah, it um, look, let me start with the good news. The good news is that there are thousands of, as you said, um, scientists with with each with decades of experience who are the best in the world. And, you know, sometimes I'll I'll go on Twitter and I'll interpret some surveillance finding or, you know, play epidemiologist. And, and like, I always feel like I'm not the one who should be doing this. There are people who were, you know, built in a lab to be doing this work, and yet we're not hearing from them. So the problem isn't that we don't have expertise at CDC. Uh, the problem is that that, that the, their voices aren't being heard. Um, and and I think it's something that, that can be fixed, and I hope will be fixed. We're speaking today with Dr. Farzad Mustashari, chair of the COVID-19 Symptom Data Challenge. You know, Farzad, I want to pull the thread on the on the conversation about trust. And clearly, Facebook has 2 billion uh, users, uh, willing users. Uh, but there are many who feel the data is being used for the benefit of others' profit. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the privacy risk and what Facebook is doing to ensure privacy is secured and just sort of the message uh, to our citizen scientists about why this is so important uh, for for people to be uh, engaged in and and the work you're doing on the back end to ensure uh, the safety of their information. Yeah. So look, I, I I can't comment on on Facebook as an actor in so many other other ways, um, but I can say that in terms of this Facebook Data for Good project, I think it is it is it is doing data for good, and I do think they're doing it in a responsible way. Uh, let me let me tell you a few of the things that are that are relevant for the listeners. Um, this data that we're talking about here, the symptom data, is not from scraping people's social media or anything like that. It's it's literally a, a banner ad that says, "Do you want to take part in this survey from Carnegie Mellon?" And if they click on it, opt in obviously voluntarily, and they're taken to a screen where they're the, the, there's consent basically to take part in the survey. Then they leave the Facebook ecosystem, leave the platform, and go to Qualtrics where the surveys are done. Uh -huh. So it's consent is voluntary. There's no information goes back or forth of the um, other than the consented individuals plus the the survey sample weights that are get pushed to Carnegie Mellon University's Delphi Survey Research Group, which is a highly credible academic group. So. Uh, that's, you know, in terms of how the, where the survey comes from, it's people willingly answering questions, um, consented and, and with, a I think, a high security bar in terms of the, the Carnegie Mellon site. The second part of it is, well, who has access to that information? And um, the, the information that we're putting out and making publicly available is aggregated information. So minimum cell sizes um, rolled up to the, to the county level or the state level. There's no identifiability. There, um, if you're a university academic, you can uh, apply to, to access the microdata. Uh, and I understand that there, there are over a dozen university folks who, who have done that. But 
Again, it's all done under what you would consider traditional IRB and academic research provisions. Will it pop up on everyone's screen? Is it uh, on everybody's Facebook uh, feed? Um, they, you know, they, they select a sample of people and, and mm -hmm. say like, hey, do you want to participate in the survey? So it's, a, it's an ongoing um, uh, offer to, to do it. Well, Dr. Bostashari, one of the uh, things that keeps us going through these challenging times is there's always some unanticipated advances, right, that come with these great challenges. Uh, the acceleration of uh, use of telehealth in primary care and yeah. behavioral health has certainly uh, been one of those. But another one is really uh, this possible game changer for primary care uh, and the ability to maybe aggregate real-time data to really do a much better job of uh, watching over our large cohorts of patients uh, who have chronic illness or who have needs for additional uh, prevention and health promotion. A lot of practices have had trouble integrating uh, data like that into their workflow. Do you want to opine a bit on how platforms like uh, the Facebook symptom database could be modified to assist frontline providers such as primary care providers? You've done a lot of innovation in this area. We'd yeah. really be curious about some of the things you're excited about. Yeah, look, I, I moving away, stepping away from the, the Facebook symptom survey, I, I think the the point is how do we get situational awareness of the greater world mm -hmm. into clinical workflows? That's what you're really talking yeah. about. And well you know, said. for for many uh, for many years, decades, um, my hope was that electronic health records were going to be those tools for population health, that they were going to provide that visibility, 360-degree visibility uh, into the, the care of the patient, but also not just the people who are here today right. where you're going to see and you're going to bill a visit for, right. but right. of your entire panel of patients, who should you be worried about? Right. What's happening to them out there? Uh, when someone goes to the hospital, do you get notified when mm -hmm. someone leaves the emergency room? Do you get a ping in your in your practice? Uh, do you have workflows for then doing something with that information? If your patient doesn't fill a prescription, do you ever know about it? And do you, right. do you ever have an opportunity to do something about it? That is the heart of population health. Right. And then, you know, I don't think electronic health records, despite five years of our efforts, are going to be the tools to do that. Hmm. And what we've done uh, at, at Allidade, we support 550 practices uh, across 30 states. They're all on, they're on 90 different electronic health record and practice management systems, but they're using our tool to do population health work. And it's a single cloud-based soft piece of software that does care management, panel management, work lists, and point of care, and now telehealth as well. Great. Uh, and it's just part of how we how we're able to get success at reducing hospitalizations. We saved 10,000 hospitalizations last year, $180 million of savings for Medicare alone. Um, and that's the key. The key part of it is providing that information in context for for population health purposes. And, you know, we do provide as part of a small part of that, right, like COVID uh, information for the individuals as well as for for the communities. But it's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, you're doing great work there, and we've been following you for a long time. Uh, I remember that uh, your work in New York City uh, with electronic health records, then the National Coordinator for Health IT, uh, as the nation was really trying to 
shift over to electronic health records. You oversaw the early adoption of uh, meaningful use of technology. Uh, and you were a champion of the health uh, data palooza, gathering these tech enthusiasts uh, and developers. Open data. Uh, pardon? Open data. Open data. Right. Yeah, liberate data. Liberate uh, data. Todd Park, right, <laughs> Todd Park. <laughs> uh, and uh, I just wonder as you sort of look at uh, sort of this inflection point we're at, uh, if, if there's any silver lining people have been saying uh, about the pandemic, I don't really believe there's been any, but there is uh, ways that we're rethinking, reimagining the delivery of, of, of healthcare and, and leveraging uh, technology but probably also doing the things that you're doing now, leveraging AI. Uh, how do you see, what, what do you see the next five years looking like uh, in the landscape uh, with, uh, with, I think, this ro robust uh, adoption by people of telehealth, but also all of the folks who are coming in and trying to make real inroads on social determinants of health and in other, uh, uh, other uh, factors that are playing a role in uh, the transformation that's happening now. 2020 has been a pretty horrible year yeah. in, in many ways. Um, but let's look for the let's look for the bright spots. I, I'll I'll pick three. Uh, one one bright spot is just recognizing that healthcare can move darn fast mm -hmm. when it has to, right. and and regulators can move darn fast. I mean, what what CMS did. Yep. on an almost daily basis uh, was was extraordinary to help keep practices alive and afloat um, and and to modify regulations with OIG, with OCR, with the payment side to enable telehealth to happen. And then the response from healthcare providers to in literally in 12 days, we went from 100 telehealth visits to 10,000 telehealth visits. Right, we we stood up 150 practices on telehealth over a weekend. You would have said that's impossible, right? So so that's the one bright spot is kind of recognizing we can still sprint when we have to. The second bright spot, um, I think, was uh, as you mentioned this uh, recognition that fee for service is actually not reliable, and that we do need to, painful as it is. Right, like we need to think about ways of of moving off of of you only get paid if someone walks in the door, um, and I hope that in the next five years we will see an embrace of value-based care that's even greater than the trends were before. The third bittersweet recognition and 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 just um, hard truth of 2020 in the aftermath of George Floyd was that we, all of us, can't be bystanders. And, you know, the fact that, you know, we're looking at racial disparities in, in deaths from COVID. We in our company are, are looking not only at how are we doing on the various things we're working on, our core initiatives, but also what is the degree of racial disparities in those and we are committing to move to action to remove those and eliminate those racial disparities so you know i i'm these have been hard times for for many of us and, and for many of our patients our providers our communities um but i do think that we have an opportunity to learn and and grow from them well thank you for calling out those three very important points 
We've been speaking today with Dr. Farzad Mostashari, the founder and CEO of Adelaide and chair of the COVID-19 Symptom Data Challenge. You can learn more about this exciting work by going to symptomchallenge.org, or you can follow Dr. Mostashari on Twitter at Farzad underscore MD. Farzad, we want to thank you for your decades-long dedication to innovation and public health and for joining us again today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Donald Trump and Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden have made competing claims about Biden's early statements on the coronavirus. Following the disclosure of comments he made to journalist Bob Woodward in March about downplaying the coronavirus, Trump has tried to turn the tables on Biden, claiming it was Biden who maintained through late February that the coronavirus was, quote, not even going to be a problem. That's not accurate. The former vice president warned early about the potential danger posed by the virus and about the need for a thoughtful response by the federal government. At a February 28 campaign rally in South Carolina, Biden said the coronavirus is, quote, a serious public health challenge. Conversely, Biden stretched the facts at a CNN town hall on September 17, claiming that in January he wrote an op-ed, quote, saying, we've got a pandemic, we've got a real problem. The op-ed did not go that far. In it, he warned about the possibility of a pandemic. He said Trump was not prepared to lead the country through a, quote, global health challenge, which Biden did predict would, quote, get worse before it gets better. We reviewed all of Biden's public comments that we could find in early 2020 about the coronavirus. For more, see our website, factcheck.org. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. If music soothes the savage beast, the question they want to answer at the Sync Project is, how exactly? There are lots of anecdotal studies supporting music's ability to trigger memory or boost endurance or focus, but virtually nothing is known about how music truly impacts our physiological and neurological state. This is the question that intrigued scientist Keiki Kuranam, a systems biology PhD from Harvard, who wondered, how could music be scientifically harnessed as a powerful precision medicine tool? They formed the SYNC Project with a cross-section of neuroscientists, biologists, audio engineers, even some rock stars like Peter Gabriel, and started by using artificial intelligence systems to analyze existing playlists that purport to promote relaxation, induce sleep, enhance focus, or athletic performance. And once we have this set of songs that our machine learning algorithms predict to be effective for a specific activity, 
we can then run studies using these devices like your you know heart rate monitors your smart watches your activity trackers and actually look at how effective indeed is that song for that purpose. Karanam and her colleagues note that most of us self-medicate with music already. So why not harness this ubiquitous tool that's available to all of us and develop strategies and systems that might replace pharmacological interventions with musical ones? So we're literally walking around with, you know, 40 million songs in our pocket every single day. So we saw great opportunity and really being able to understand how music was affecting us to measure how different types of music affect both our psychological health as well as our physiology. Karanam and her team seem vast potential for reducing reliance on drugs by crafting personalized music interventions in the management of a variety of complex conditions, such as pain management, PTSD, even Parkinson's disease. In Parkinson's disease, patients have trouble coordinating movement. So by playing them the right kind of music, it can be an external auditory support they have that's going to help them walk more smoothly. The SYNC project, combining computer technology and neuroscience, physiology and musicology to harness the healing powers inherent in music. Now that is a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.